You are listening to Meat and Potatoes, a 12-week teaching series from Jubilee Church. Meat and Potatoes is an expression used to convey the most important and basic part of an idea or practice. This series will explore some of the most critical elements of Christian faith. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We're going to continue in our series, Meat and Potatoes, and uh, what I want to talk to you today is about how this idea that everybody uh, has a gift. Our hope for people when they come to one of our services, whether that's here in the city or at the lake or in Washington, is that they would come and they would receive uh, gospel ministry. That is, that they would receive word ministry, that they would receive prayer ministry, that they would experience love and hope and faith. And by receiving this ministry, that their lives would be changed. And uh, there are many pastors and leaders, myself included, um, who, who give this kind of ministry. And, but our hope is that, that, that people wouldn't just receive this kind of ministry, but that more and more they would be encouraged and equipped to give this kind of ministry. And by God's grace, I mean, we're seeing that throughout our church. Um, I would, you know, there, there's about 75% participation in community groups and areas of service. And so people are getting the idea that the way that the church works isn't by ministry of the few, but ministry of the many. That we're not called just to receive ministry, but we are called to, to learn and to grow in giving that kind of ministry away. Because that's what you see when you open up the pages of the New Testament, uh, any church, and, and we we put ourselves under this banner, we don't get to decide what kind of church that we want to be. Um, what we can do is what every church should do is, is to faithfully look at the scriptures, to faithfully look at the Bible, to see uh, the kind of people that Jesus told us to be and the kind of people that, the, that we see as this new, ch- this new community, the church unfolded in the book of Acts and as we see in the New Testament. And, and what we see in that community is it wasn't ministry by the few, but it was ministry by the many. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at, uh, at Romans 12 uh, and look at how Paul described what this looked like and, and how we can uh, enter into that and what are some of the barriers that keep us uh, from, minis- from us, not, not just the, the few, but the many, that everyone would be one who ministers according uh, to their gift. Uh, if you know how the Bible is written, you know that chapters and verses were something that were added later to the Bible. When they were originally written, they were written, they're, they're called, this, Romans is called an epistle, uh, which isn't the wife of an apostle, it just means a letter. And so it's just, it's just a letter written, and it was all one thought. And so uh, Romans, we, we subdivided that into, or not we as in Jubilee, but like somewhere, somebody else a long time ago, subdivided that into chapters. And this is about two thirds into his letter. And how Romans begins, it begins um, with Paul saying that everybody has knowledge of God. There is no, I don't really know who God is. No, the Bible says that everybody knows who God is. God has revealed to everyone who he is. And it's, you know, he talks about how we can see God through creation. Uh, he says that in Romans 1.19. Romans 1.21, Paul writes that we do something with truth. There are two things that we can do with this truth of God, this knowledge of God, that we can worship him in light of that, or we can suppress that truth. Now, what happens is that all of us, at least initially, chose to suppress that truth. 
we didn't worship or behave or act or live in light of that, but we suppressed that truth and we did things that we shouldn't do. That is, we ran from Jesus and we, and we ran to other things. We ran away from light and we ran toward darkness. We ran away from life and we ran toward death. We ran away from heaven and we ran toward hell. So that's why when Paul writes in Romans 3.23, a little bit later in his letter, he says, for the wages of sin, the result of sin, the result of us choosing our own way and not worshiping the truth, but suppressing the truth, the result or the wages of that is death. But as you read on in Romans 5, it says, and this great twist, this great plot twist in history is that Jesus enters in our time-space world and he He dies for our sin. So he says this result, this wage that they deserve because of their sin, I will pay the price. And this this, this dynamic that, that one who is sinless would die for those who are sinful. It says, Peter writes in 1 Peter 12, that even the angels long to look upon this. It's like they don't even get the gospel. The angels are like, hey, this doesn't make sense to us because when we sin, we get cast down into hell. But they sin over and over again and somehow Jesus has provided a way for them to be redeemed. Jesus has justified us. And then he writes later on in Romans 8, 21, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and they are completely loved. And who could bring a charge against the elect? The answer is no one because Christ has justified them and nothing can separate them now from the love of God. Not death or famine or naked or angels or demons. or Nothing can separate them. And then... Now here in Romans 12, which we're looking at today, he says, therefore, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, by this life that, that I've, just, I've just explained to you, I've went in great detail over these 11 chapters to explain to you your condition and explain to you how merciful God has been to you. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present or to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. If you understand everything that I've told you in these 11 chapters, if you believe everything that I've told you in these 11 chapters, here's what you will do. You will voluntarily and willingly offer your body as a living sacrifice. What is a living sacrifice? Well, it's even weirder than it sounds because... A sacrifice, the word, the Greek word there literally is killing. Present your bodies as a living killing. What? What? Present your bodies as a living killing. it's, It's Paul picking up on the idea of what Jesus said. He said, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and let's go. Now what is a cross? Is, 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 is an instrument of execution. It's designed to kill things. And what, what Paul is saying, picking up on what Jesus is saying, said over and over again, is that the, the thing that you really ought to do in light of the mercy of God is to present your body as a living killing. What, what are we to kill? Well, what are we to put to death? Well, I think the main thing 
is the thing that we put to death, that it, it's kind of where all paths lead, is the right to choose, uh, the right to live as you choose, excuse me. The main thing that you and I have to put to death, and we'll hit on this throughout the, the, the message today, the main thing that you and I have to put to death is the right to, to live as you choose. Now, I cannot believe that I am saying this in the middle of America, because we live in a culture that is, that is more adverse uh, to living out the Christian life and the gospel than any other generation in any other culture ever. Um, but that's what the, scripture, the, the scriptures are calling us to put a death to, to this idea that we belong to the, ourselves, to put to death to this idea that we belong, that we know best. And, um, and it feels like a death to do this. This is why he says, no, it's, it's, a, it's a living killing. Um, he says, but this is what you'll do in light of the mercies of God. Jesus said that if you want to, if you seek your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. That's how you can be a living killing. If you're willing to lose yourself, you'll live. If you're willing, if you seek after yourself, you'll die. Make sense? Great. Okay. Um, so what stops us from being a living sacrifice? Because this is, a, this is kind of a heavy idea. Well, what he says here. He says, he's, he starts off saying, hey, you know, in light of the mercies of God, in light of everything I've told you, the thing to do is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he kind of adds, this is why you won't do, this is, then he gives this warning, do not be conformed to this world. So how do, why would you not present your, your life as a living sacrifice? Because you are conformed to this world. Now that word conform means pattern, that you pattern your life after this world. Well, how do you pattern your life after this world? Well, again, this world lives off uh, the main value of me first. The pattern of this world, to be conformed to the nature of this world, it's me before you. But Jesus, uh, what he calls his disciples to uh, well, this is what he said, because the disciples were having this argument about who's going to be the greatest. And they were making this argument based upon the, the idea of, of me first and being conformed to the image of the world. And this is what Jesus had to say in John 20. Can we show that? But Jesus called uh, them to him and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones, this is sarcasm in Jesus, and their great ones... Uh, exercise authority over them. This is what he says. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. The con- to conform to this world means to conform to this me first attitude. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So how do we uh, avoid not being conformed to this world? Nonconformity, let me just say this first, nonconformity to this world doesn't mean to conform to another world. Just be, uh, so, non, so just to, to nonconform to this world isn't to find another set of external behaviors uh, to conform around, but what non, how you nonconform is this. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So the key to not being conformed to this world is to be transformed. Now this word transformed um, uh, is this word metamorpho. 
And I didn't pronounce that wrong. That's a Greek word, metamorpho. What does that sound like? Metamorphosis. It's just that you, ch- you kind of like change into something completely different. And this word is used twice by Paul, once here in Romans 12, another time in 1 Corinthians 3. There's one other time it's brought up, and it's in Matthew 17. And this very strange um, time in the life of Jesus is called the, the transfiguration. And let me read that to you. Uh, it's in Matthew 17, uh, verse 2. It says, and he was transfigured. It's the same Greek word, metamorpho, which is that word transformed, that, that was translated Transformed, And he was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Uh, Jesus said about us in, in Matthew 13 that when the, the righteous, that is us, because Jesus has made us righteous, righteous if you are a Christian. If you're a Christian here, the great truth about you is that he's made you righteous. So we don't, we don't believe in self-righteousness. We believe in God-given righteousness. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so what he's saying is that, that, uh, it, that one day we will see Jesus and we'll become like him externally and completely. And what will happen to us one day completely and externally is happening to us now internally and spiritually. You see, the other time I mentioned that this word is mentioned, this word transformed, is in 1 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That we are, he wants to do this internal work of transformation in our lives from the inside out. Well, how do we become transformed? Glad you asked. (laughs) By the renewal of your mind. That word renewal means that it's like a complete makeover. You know, you watch those shows where they do total makeovers. But either, either, you know, they get the frumpy person, who, they make up, man, wow, then they look amazing. New outfit or the house, they, they do a total renewal. It says your mind needs to experience this total makeover. Because um, there's something wrong with your mind. Um, and, and what pe- a lot of people, though, think what's wrong with our minds. A lot of people say, you know, what's wrong with our minds is it doesn't, it doesn't have the right knowledge. It doesn't have access to all the knowledge and the information it needs. Uh, so education becomes a great instrument of personal and social redemption. And that's carried over to the church world. And so what it is, the, the church, I mean, we have this mounds and, and mounds of, of information. Uh, there seems to be this passion and zeal for knowledge and information, but little passion and zeal for transformation. We've become masters of information, but not masters of life. And so you see the early church, they had very little access to information, very little access to information. And yet they experience the kind of transformation that is foreign to you and I. I mean, they, very few of them would actually even have a written copy of the, of the scriptures. And, and you've got like, I mean, my kids have like five versions of a story Bible, not to mention the umpteen translations and, you know, you know Bible for teens and Bible for, you know, girl teens and boy teens and... <laughs> Men and women and young adults and 11 and a half year olds. And just like, it's just like all this information and information and that we just flood information, 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 information. And information is great. 
Jesus said in John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. John 20, 31 uh, we actually have this on the screen, but those are written. So he, he's, he, he just, this is, there's 21 chapters in the gospel of John and he's almost to the end. And he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so information and, and access and believing this information is vitally important, but it's just a doorway because he goes on to say, and that by believing that you may have life in his name, the point of knowledge and information and belief is not, is, not, is not intrinsically for those things. It's so that you would have life in his name. That, that you wouldn't just, you know, read the Bible. You wouldn't just be a, a, a reader of the Bible and you wouldn't just be a listener of the Bible, but you would be a doer of the Bible. The scriptures and all the things that it talks about isn't just stuff that we have mental assent to, but it's, it's, it's something that we're meant to experience and grab a hold of and believe and be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Because you see, the main problem isn't that we just don't have the right information. The problems with our mind is that it's fallen. And so Paul writes in a parallel, a parallel verse to Romans 12, in Ephesians 4.23, he says that your mind, your, the spirit of your minds need to be renewed. Renewed. Your spirit of your mind needs to be renewed. That you have a mind, but you also have a mindset. That you just don't have a view, you have a viewpoint. That your mind isn't just some uh, processor of data and information to analyze things. But your, 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 your mind can perceive and detect, but it also has a posture. It has a demeanor. It has an attitude. And it has a bent. And it has a bent that is hostile to God. And when I mean that it's hostile to God, I just don't mean that it's hostile to a, um, a moral way of living. That's not what, because that's what it means to you just conform to another pattern of doing things. But actually there's a transformation that your, your mind just doesn't need new information. Your mind needs a different viewpoint. It needs to be, it, it's fall, it, needs, it needs to be completely reworked. It needs a different bend. It needs a different attitude. It needs a different demeanor. It all goes back to what I said earlier about like, because our mindset is me first. And some of these mindset that are hostile to God is exactly where he goes uh, in this passage. He, he wants to renew our minds. One of the things that he mentions in this passage, it's, impli- it's not explicit, it's implicit, is that one of the things that, that our minds need to be renewed to is that it's better to serve than to be served. Now, I know you know that cognitively. If you've been here more than four weeks, you've heard me rehearse that, version of that verse up there. In fact, you may have rolled your eyes when it came up. You know that cognitively. The information is not the problem. The renewed mind that leads to transformation is the problem. So one of the things he's wanting your mind to be renewed at is that you would, that you would believe in desi- to, that, that to serve is to better 
is better than to be served because the, the conformity of this world, see, we live in a service-based economy where the goal, the whole goal of life is to get people to serve you, to get people to mow your yards and to, and to make your food and to wash your cars. It's better to own a house than it is to be the guy who works on your house. It's better to go to the Cardinals game and watch it than it is to be the one who picks up your trash after you leave. It's better to come to one of these services in and out as quickly as possible than it is to be the ones who come early to attend a service and stay later to serve another one. That's the mindset. That's the viewpoint. And so when you, when you, get, when you, when you get asked to, what, what, what keeps you from presenting your body and the gifts and everything that you have as a living sacrifice is that um, you, you have, we have a mind that is conformed to the pattern of this world and it's not transformed by God because when we get asked to serve, we're like, well, why would I do that? Well, if you have a mind that's conformed to this world, you wouldn't do that. Or at least you wouldn't like doing that. Another um, mindset that needs to be addressed, it's in verse 5. It's this passage. It says, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Uh, because we are Americans and declare our independence any chance that we get, these, the implications of these kind of verses just fly over our heads and we don't f- give a second thought to it. Let me explain myself. This verse says, if you are in a relationship with Christ and I'm in a relationship with Christ, guess what? We are in Christ. Just like you're in this room, you are in Christ. Now let me ask you a question. This is high, high logic. If you're in this room, and I'm in this room, somehow we're in this room together. You with me? Our minds don't need information. They just need to be transformed. So what this verse is saying is that you are in, if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, that we are in Christ together. And there's something very, very, very significant about that. Our true identity, or excuse me, our true individuality is found, discovered, experienced in a relationship to the body of Christ, individually members of one another. I am a part of you and you are a part of me. I'm the foot, you're the eye. She's the ear. We are members of one body. Which means the individuality that you and I have, um, we can't even begin to discover our own individuality outside of you becoming a living sacrifices and connecting yourself as one with another body of believers. The gospel doesn't want to strip away your identity, but what the gospel wants to do is help you discover your true self. And you will never discover your true self if, you are, if your mind is conformed to the pattern of this world unless it's transformed to understand that you are to be one with another body of believers. So the, the language in scripture is that he makes two people not he doesn't say, I have called two people to come together and sit in a room. 
I have called two people to come together and stand side by side. He says, I have called two people because of the blood of Jesus, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I have called two people. I become multiple people to become as one. Which means that our language changes from me to we. There isn't what... There, there, it, what becomes foreign to you is there is no what has God called me to do. There's this, langu- this new language that comes to you, which is what has God called we to do. Paradoxically, it's only by letting go of the me for the we that you will ever find yourself. The, I'll repeat myself what Jesus said. If you seek your life, you will lose it. You'll, you'll understand. You, you will not understand. You'll, you'll, you'll die frustrated and purposeless. Um, but if you give away your life and you embrace the corporate, the we, you will gain it. So by renewing of your mind, by adopting a new mindset, a new viewpoint, a new attitude, a new bent, you will be transformed, which will lead to you naturally, of course, in light of the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, which means that you'll become to love being a servant and you'll begin to yoke yourself with a community of believers so tightly that you will not know the difference of what it, between serving someone else and serving yourself. It will feel the same to you. To serve someone else is like serving your own self. God wants to draw you so tightly that there is no difference between what you get and what someone else gets. It's all the same because we're one. So there is no, oh, I got to give of myself to somebody else. No, man, it's, 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 not a, it's not a loss, it's a gain. And we're mutually in a hundred different ways with all of our gifts serving each other and building up the church in amazing ways, but it, it means a death to yourself. It is, there's life, but there's death. And then he, he the, re, the how we serve is he, he goes through a list. He mentions seven different gifts. And th- just to say that this isn't a complete list. Um, I mean, he mentions seven. There could be 70 or 700. There's tons of gifts. So the main point of this passage isn't the gifts that he mentions, but uh, man, I love them. So I want to mention them. And so, um, what he mentioned several of these, and because I, I would love to have more of these gifts on display. The first one he mentions is prophecy. Prophecy is when you speak a God-inspired thought or impression that is beneficial to the entire community. This is what Paul says later to another group of believers, the Corinthians. Um, do we have that? It says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. I just think we would be a better community if we prophesied more. If we um, took the time to hear God and, and communicate those thoughts and impressions to one another. And, and some of you may be saying, well, that sounds dangerous. Shouldn't we just like read verses to each other? Well, yeah, we should read verses to each other. And if we read those verses, it's going to say, you should prophesy more. <laughs> Are you with me? Okay, so we should do both of those things. Yes, we should weigh it. 
yes, you know, it, it, you know we, we need, it needs to be in line with the scriptures. And prophecy doesn't say something that scriptures don't. It just kind of highlights something in the moment uh, for you that God wants you to specifically know. So we sh- I, I want, we should, I, I love, I'm praying for more prophecy. Uh, secondly, is serving, serve, you know, acts of service. Um, this is the desire to do whatever it takes to get the job done, whether it's a big job or a small job, whether it gets noticed or it happens in the shadows. It's just a desire to get things done. It's, it's being willing to show up early to pick up trash. It's, it's staying late to do the same or to brew coffee or to put out bulletins or to be out in the parking lot, to do the things that, that no one seems to notice but just have to happen. You just desire to do whatever it takes to get things done. And if this is your desire, I mean, I just want to... I just want to... Uh, sh- you're an amazing company because Jesus, um, man, he came and he says, hey, you called me Lord and Master. Now, watch me wash your feet. Um, and he, he was willing to do, he's willing to serve and do anything. And I just would love that heart of service to grow, that those gifts to grow. Thirdly, he mentions teaching. This is the ability to take anything that you know about God and communicate it to someone else in a helpful way. That's it. At least one other person. Doesn't have to be a lot of people. Just one other person. And, I, and I'm praying for an army of men and women who daily seek the scriptures and learn to distribute that out like bread to those who need to receive it. And I pray that that gift grows taller as well as wider. I, I pray that those who, who like myself communicate uh, broadly that would continue to do a, a, better, a better job. And just to say, if you, if you do have this gift, uh, I think an excellent context for, for this gift to emerge, like if you really feel like maybe there's, uh, that you have an extra measure of it, is to, is to serve in the J-Kids and teach. And I'll, I'll explain that to you. In fact, I would say that if, especially if you plan to have kids or you do have kids, I would encourage you to teach a class about a year ahead of where your kid is at. Um, so that you can parent better. I remember, I remember this like it was yesterday. My daughter, Ella, she's, uh, she's almost 11, and when she was four years old, she came to me, and she asked me, she says, Dad, does Jesus split us open? What are you learning in J-Kids? <laughs> I gotta pay more attention. Um, And, and actually, she, read, she, she was like, well, it says that Jesus lives inside of us. How does he live inside of you if he doesn't split us open? That's a great question. Why don't you talk to your mom? And so, <laughs> but even as someone who like, like, teaches the Bible on a regular basis, like, well, how do I explain this to a four-year-old? That challenged my ability to teach and to help make things clear. Hey, if that, I mean, if you want to grow your gift of teaching, that's an excellent place to go. Uh, Then he mentions exhorting. This is a gift of encouragement. You know you have the gift of encouragement if after the service I come wanting to talk to you because I don't want to talk to the elders who tell me what I say wrong. I want to talk to you and find out what I said right. And so you have that gift of encouragement. You bring, they do too, by the way. They bring, to have the, the, the word encouragement means to bring strength, comfort. It's, I think it's, it's a word that's closely related to the word paraclete, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside and to bring strength. And what a powerful gift 
It means to give strength based upon love and not coercion. Paul, in another letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians um, 1, 9, he says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sakes, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal or literally exhort you. I could command you and coerce you to do this, but I prefer to exhort and appeal to you, which is he's doing in this passage. He didn't say, I command you to present your bodies. I appeal to you. I urge you in view to voluntarily offer yourself So I would love for this exhorting gift, this encouragement gift to be, man, on the rise. That we'd be spurring each other more and more, as it says in Hebrews, to love and good deeds. Not out of compulsion or some law, but out of love. Generosity. Uh, Because the needs of the church continue to grow, because as people get added and added, you know, our annual budget is nearing a million dollars. And how that gets funded is that hundreds of you our, our, uh, God has caused your heart to, to want to give sacrificially and regularly and cheerfully and proportionately. And, and you do that and, that and that helps. And then there are dozens of you that God has given you an extraordinary joy, an extraordinary faith, an extraordinary desire to sacrifice and give cheerfully. And some of you have the gift of giving and you're poor financially, relatively speaking, and some of you have the gift of giving and you're rich, uh, you know, um, relatively speaking, financially. And so being, having the gift of generosity isn't because you have a lot of money. Having the gift of generosity is just that God has given you an extra capacity and an extra desire to want to take your generosity and give it away. Now, I would say, uh, for those of you who do have lots of money, one of the things that says in First uh, uh, Timothy 6, Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, he says, command those who are rich not to get arrogant in their wealth, but to, to excel in generosity. So it is a good thing if you do have lots and lots of money that I just want, the, the reason why you have that isn't, it wasn't meant for all for you. Um, it was meant for, for others. And God wants to use the grace that he's given you to earn that, to give away to others. And one of the things that we're doing uh, here in this location next Sunday is Mike Lawson is gathering those who have said, you know what, I think I have the gift of, of giving, generosity. Just to help, to come alongside, he has that gift and to come alongside you and encouraging that gift. In our 17 year history as a church, we've never done that. We've come alongside and done lots of seminars for lots of gifts but I guess just because it gets weird with money that we've just shied away from that. But if you, so if, you've, if you're already a part of that group, go for it. But if you want to be a part of that group uh, in this location, go ahead and mark on your card that you want to be a part of that and you can grow in that gift. And then um, it mentions leadership. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for you have countless guides. You have countless teachers in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. We need more people who are willing to lead and care and love and look after people. My prayer is for more and better leaders. Mercy. My hope is that we would all be merciful, but there are some of us who, are, who have like this, 
this extra desire to be, to do acts of mercy. And you do acts of mercy in such a way that inspire all of us to want to be merciful. In our city, both here in St. Louis at the Lake, Washington, it needs mercy. It needs a church to, to show mercy. And while everyone else looks at the plight of people and say, oh, they probably deserve it, you say, no, 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 no I want to show mercy. My Father in heaven, his mercy is endless. It says in Lamentations 3 that his mercy never ends. They are, it's new every morning. Every time we think that we have, we have drawn out the patience of God, now he wakes up with fresh mercy for you over and over and over again. And man, this church needs those who have this gift of mercy to rise up and to use that gift. But the biggest thing about these gifts aren't the, isn't the specifics. He mentions two things that I want to close with. One, he's, that we all have at least one. It says, but to each is given, which means there should be no unemployed Christians. There, be, there should be no passive Christians. There should be no one in the community uh, who isn't actively seeking to make a contribution uh, to the church. You being a part of a Christian community has to be more than you coming and recharging your batteries week after week. In fact, if that's what your attitude is, that's one of the reasons why it's probably really easy for you to be inconsistent. Because the reason why you're inconsistent is because the reason why you're part of this is for you. And so there are some times where you being here is something you really have a felt need to be a part of, and sometimes you don't have a felt need to be a part of. But I'm telling you, when you get a hold of the idea that God has given you a gift to contribute to other people, that puts a new light on your desire to be with other believers and to use that gift not only in this church but outside of this church and you will want to take every opportunity to be a part of that. That's what it means to be transformed by the grace of God. Is that you're not looking to be dis- just to be served but to the degree that God has transformed your life will be the degree that you will want to offer yourself to others in use of that gift. Jesus Christ, he said of himself that he came not to be served, but to serve others. But the other thing I want us to notice is just that everyone has a gift. So so everyone here has at least one gift. Everyone here has at least one way of making a contribution to what we're doing here. And man, if you, if, you th- if you don't know what that is or how to use it, you can come talk to us. But if you have an idea or you have a thought like, hey, I could show mercy, I can lead, I could teach. Just if you have a gift, if you could serve and you have an idea what that looks like, um, go for it. Um, and we'll let you know if, it, if you do something dumb, but just go for it. Um, but we, we, we all have one gift, and it also says that we have different gifts. It says all the members do not have the same function. We, we, every Christian is like a snowflake. Every Christian is like a fingerprint. 
absolutely unique. Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian believers in, in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship. And that word workmanship literally means masterpiece. That we are his masterpiece. We are this one-of-a-kind work of art. That, that you have this unique gifting and you have a unique degree to that gifting matched with your unique personality. And you have certain gifts and experiences and abilities. And what this means, because you have you, this uniqueness, because he's made you this masterpiece, because you, he has made you like this unique work of art. There are people in St. Louis and there are people in Washington. There are people in the lake that only you can touch. Only you can touch. And if you don't wake up to the reality that God has given you a gift to minister, there's someone out there that you're meant to touch. Before the foundations of the world, God predestined this to happen. I know how I'm going to reach that person. I'm going to make her. I know how I'm going to reach that person. I'm going to make him. And he predestined you before the foundation of the world to make you a masterpiece to walk in good deeds. And to not walk in this gift really is to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. One of the things that, one of the ways that you can, this is what I mean by finding your identity, is that God has given you, you are a gift and God has given you a gift. And that gift shapes how you operate in life. It shapes how you operate in the context of this community. And it shapes, and it, it's, it's how you become aware of your eternal purpose. Not just purpose in this life, but it carries on into eternity. And so if you don't tap into this gift that God has given you, man, you're never going to know who you're truly meant to be and you'll be resisting the work of Holy Spirit in your life. Spiritual maturity means, means quite simply to become like Jesus. You grow in maturity as you become more and more like Jesus. And so you know you're in this place of maturity when you are okay, in fact, you revel in the idea that you could give more than you could receive. It says of Jesus that, that he had the name above all. He, had the, he was high, high above, but he lowered himself more than anyone. Because he lowered himself more than anyone, he gets the name that's above all names. And your greatness will be found in how low you're willing to go. How much you're willing to present yourself as a living sacrifice, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed through a renewing of your mind to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then it says, this is your spiritual worship. Now that word spiritual worship, if you like the King James Version, it says this is your reasonable service. Because that word spiritual in worship, uh, that, we're, that the, I think the King James is a better translation because it uses the word reasonable. That word uh, means like logico, if I can pronounce that right in the Greek. Logico, which sounds like what? Logic. And so what he's saying is that this is your, this is the logical thing to do. In light of what Jesus has done for you, this is the logical, this is the reasonable thing to do. Um, and, and this is how we as believers, this is how we are empowered to live this way. Because there are a lot of people, what makes Christians different isn't that they live good lives, because there's a lot of people who live good lives who aren't Christians, who believe other things, or don't believe anything at all. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't lie. There are a lot of people who, um, 
pay their taxes. There are a lot of people who recycle. There are a lot of people who, um, you know, love their neighbor or give away money to charity. They're lot, and I'm glad that they do it. In some ways, if you're being charitable, I don't care why you're doing it. I'm just glad that you're doing it. There's a few reasons. Some people do it out of custom. It's just the way I was raised. Some people do it uh, out of prudence or, or wisdom. It's like, well, I don't really believe in a right and wrong, but I just think this is a prudent thing to do. If we all do these behaviors, we'll live in a better society. Some people do it out of religion. If they, don't, they believe if they don't do these things, God's going to get them. But fear and logic and custom or tradition will not empower you to live the life that God's called you to live when nobody is looking. You see, what makes a Christian different isn't that they live a good life, because a lot of people live good lives. It's why they live a good life. And we have access to a power that's beyond um, anything. And that's why Paul says it's in light of the mercies of God that you need to be transformed. And Jesus is the ultimate example of voluntary, voluntary submission. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life away. I offer it. Why did he do that? Why did, he, he didn't just become a living sacrifice. He became a dying one. Jesus took his hands off of his life voluntarily. No one makes me do this, but I willingly take the, my hands off my life and I will become a dying sacrifice. Why? Because he loves us. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy of seeing you and you and you and you and me saved from our sin, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He took his hands off his life and became a dying sacrifice. So Paul says, isn't it only reasonable and logical that you take your hands off your life to become a living one? To the degree that you see the mercies that he's shown you will be the degree that you will continually and regularly offer yourself as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable service. This is your spiritual worship.